0: You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit largerstory.com. It's always a joy to be back at Moody at Founders Week. And um, I think we've been here, my wife and I were discussing this this morning, I think this is our sixth time. I'm really not sure if that's the case. Whenever it comes to dates, I'm always a little bit off. One of the reasons I'm not glad that my wife is here today is that if ever I tell a story that has a date attached to it, I'm usually wrong, and she knows exactly when it was. So when I tell a story about two years ago this happened, understand that I don't know when it happened. (laughs) And please assure my wife that none of you care. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 And I want you to listen I want you to listen to a sentence that if this sentence came from the mouth of anyone other than Jesus it would be offensively simplistic and irritatingly silly. But because it came from Jesus, it's neither of those things. You know the context of John chapter 14 that Jesus had just told his disciples in John chapter 13 to relate to each other in a way that exposed them to painful rejection. I want you to wash people's feet. I want you to humbly serve others I want you to drop all of your posturing. I want you to give up all efforts to impress. I want you to abandon every strategy for self-protection of taking care of your own soul. And I want you to freely give yourselves and humbly give yourselves to others. I want you to take a huge risk in the way you relate. He said that in John chapter 13. And then he had just revealed, before we come to John chapter 14, he had just revealed that one of their ministry team was a traitor. And then he also said, just before we get to John chapter 14, that their ministry team leader was about to fail badly. And he was about to fail badly when the team most needed his leadership. And after saying to his disciples... Take a risk in the way you relate that opens you up to incredible pain. Realize that one of your number is not of us. He's a traitor. And realize that your leader is going to fail badly. After saying all that, he begins John chapter 14 and verse 1 by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. I would guess many of you today have deeply troubled hearts. You could come up and tell stories, if you chose to do so, stories about how you've taken a risk in a relationship and you've lost. You could tell stories of divorce and betrayal, how you've given yourself to somebody, whether to a spouse or to children or to a close friend, and they've broken your heart. And Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. What did he mean? Some of you have perhaps received news that a trusted friend or a trusted Christian leader has fallen in a very obvious and difficult way. I received the letter just this current week. I think it was on Monday I received the letter, perhaps. I really have no idea. My wife would know. (laughs) Sometime in the past year. Actually, it was much more recently, and the letter was a very sad one from a friend that my wife and I have known for about 20 years. And he announced in this letter his plans to divorce his wife. And my first response when I read that letter, my first internal response was, when is this all going to end? I was very disturbed. What's going on in people's lives? And Jesus said to his disciples when a member of their team betrayed him, was exposed as a betrayer jesus said don't let your hearts be troubled what did he mean i'm very aware as i presume you are if you're um, open to looking at yourself i'm aware within me of so much that is wrong and petty and selfish and cowardly and sometimes what's wrong with me shows itself in the simplest little ways my wife and i were getting ready to come here yesterday we flew from denver yesterday and as i was packing I went to the hall closet where I keep my top coat, knowing it was appropriate to bring to Chicago, and the top coat was not where I thought it should be. It wasn't where I expected to find it. Now, those of you who are married, what happens? What's your first thought? What does she do with it? Isn't that Right. We drove out of our home, out of our driveway yesterday to drive to the airport. And as we're sitting in the car just literally 200 yards out of our driveway, Rachel turned to me and said, I can't find my purse. I heard the accusation. And as she literally began a sentence by saying, did you? She found it. I don't want to tell you where it was. It was on her lap. What's wrong with us? Although well, those stories are silly, but they reflect that something deep and serious is, is wrong with us. We blame others so quickly. Peter was about to deny Jesus. Jesus had told Peter, you're going to deny me when I need you most. You're going to fail me. Something's wrong with you, Peter. And then he says, after telling Peter, something's wrong with you, Judas is a traitor, and you're going to relate to people in a way which will invite difficulty and betrayal. Jesus then says, don't let your hearts be troubled. My question for the afternoon is, what did he mean? Let me read you the passage in John chapter 14, verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled, rather than letting your hearts be troubled, trust. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then he gives the reason. My father and I have already written the last chapter. It's all going to turn out wonderfully. Life is one long dentist chair. <laughs> but you are got to leave with healthy teeth. It's all going to turn out great. Hang in there through whatever comes with hope. I've got everything under control. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And after, after saying that, don't let your hearts be troubled, then he goes on in the next number of verses in the end of 14 and on through 15 and 16. He goes on to... Say to them, not only is Peter going to fail, but you're all going to fail me. Every one of you. And as you try to live this life of following me, and as you fail reliably, a lot of people are going to hate you. And the last thing I want to tell you is I'm taking off. I'm leaving. So be of good cheer. (laughs) Don't let your hearts be troubled. Be of good cheer. What on earth does Jesus mean? Well, one thing we know is He knows the details of each of our stories. He knows everything that's broken my heart in this past year. He knows every trial that I'm going through that keeps me awake at night. He knows the difficulty I feel when I drive several times a week to the assisted living where my parents have just moved in a few months ago and mother now is struggling with Alzheimer's. He knows how I feel. He knows how dad feels as he cares for mother today, the day after cataract surgery yesterday, which she can't comprehend what's happening to her. He knows all about that. He knows your story. That's a little bit of mine. He knows your story. And he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. What's he saying? When you want so badly... For something in your life to be different. When you look at your circumstances, at your own life, at the life of your family, and you say, I want so badly for this to be different from the way it is. I, I want my kids to be doing differently. I want my marriage to be different than it is. I, I want my health to be different than it is. And when you want so badly for something to be different and nothing changes, you hurt And Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. What does he mean? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that a lot of people, I believe, sometimes me, hear Jesus saying something that he's not saying at all. A lot of people in these words, don't let your hearts be troubled, hear Jesus saying something that we try to obey because whatever Jesus says is truth, it's right, it's life, and we're responsible to be obedient but when we mishear his command and try to obey what he didn't say, we get in big trouble. What well, I fear that many times we hear Jesus saying when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. I know how much you desire this and it's not happening. I know how much you wish that, that this were different in your life and it's not going to happen. I know how much you long for this to be the case and it's not your experience now. I know how much you're hurting. Don't let your hearts be troubled. What he's not saying is this. Stop. Wanting so much. Deaden your desires and you'll be content. You ever felt so selfish for wanting so much? You ever said to yourself, I just need to stop wanting things to be better in my marriage. I'm just so selfish for wishing my husband really loved me and he doesn't. I'm just so self-preoccupied for wishing my kids were walking with God and they're not. I need to stop wanting so much. I need to stop caring as much as I do. And sometimes we hear Jesus say what he's not saying. We think perhaps he's saying, deaden your desires in order to be content. Do you know who actually said that? It wasn't Jesus. It was Buddha. I wonder how many Christians are functional Buddhists. One Christian philosopher, as he has studied the thought patterns of philosophers down through the years, suggested that if you were to take a poll asking everybody in the world who was the most profound thinker of all time, the chances are very great that the name Jesus would be in first place, as, of course, he's the only place, he's the way, the truth, and the light. but a poll would probably indicate that Jesus... Among most people, Christian, non-Christian alike, would suggest that Jesus was the profoundest thinker of all times. But a close second, if you were to poll all the nations of the world for all time, a close second likely would be Buddha. Why is this teaching so popular? What is Jesus saying that's entirely different than what Buddha said? I want to spend just a few minutes in telling you what I understand the Buddha to have said to contrast his error with the truth of Jesus. Buddha taught that to be content, you need to want less. To end suffering, end desire. Stop wanting so much for your kids to love God. Be content with what you have. Isn't that biblical? Want much, suffer much. Want little, suffer little. Want nothing, decrease desire to zero. And you will find nirvana, the perfect peace of a dead soul. Some years ago, we lived in Boca Raton, Florida, I was driving my car and I drove by a park and I saw a young man wearing white flowing robes sitting cross-legged in the park with his eyes closed. And I, I was very intrigued. So I stopped the car and I walked over to him. I walked up respectfully, not wanting to disturb his meditation. And I stood there. I guess I wanted to disturb his meditation. <laughs> and he became aware of my presence and he opened his eyes and looked at me. And I said, What are you doing? And he literally said, I'm searching for peace. I said, How's it going? He said, not well, I still want something. The Buddhist says, end desire, and you'll be content. You know the story, some of you, that when Buddha was a young man, his name was not Buddha, his name was Gautama Siddhartha. And he was a prince and was kept in the castle by his father, and his father would not, would not permit him to leave the castle because he didn't want his son to see suffering He wanted him to live the opulent, protected life of a king. But as a young man, Gautama Siddhartha decided he wanted to see what was outside the castle walls. And as the story is told, he left with his charioteer. He bribed his charioteer to take him outside the castle walls. And according to Buddhist teaching and Buddhist history, we're told that when he took four different trips outside the castle wall, he saw what are called the four distressing sights. First, he saw a sick man who had never seen sickness before, suffering from disease. The first distressing sight, sickness. The second distressing sight that the Thomas Siddhartha saw was an old man suffering from the ravages of age. And he was puzzled by the mystery of suffering. The third night he went out and he saw a dead man, a man with no ability to enjoy all that the young prince was enjoying... And the last night, after having seen suffering that he did not know existed until these three nights so far, his last night, as the story is told, he saw a mystical man, a son, a man who had renounced all pleasure in order to find wisdom. Is that the path to wisdom? The path to wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Is that the renunciation of pleasure? And the young man decided after those four evenings that he was going to become a Sanyasan. And one day, years later, after pondering suffering for many, many years, giving up his heritage to become a king, leaving the castle, renouncing everything, living the life of want, and then renouncing the life of want and coming up with what he called the middle way not too much and not too little, but just right in the middle. One day after meditating under the sacred tree, he rose up and announced, I am Buddha, which means the awakened one. And he began to teach the four noble truths that define Buddhism. I take time on this to contrast it with what our Lord is teaching in John 14, because I believe that in my life and maybe in yours, many times we handle the passionlessness of our hearts by functionally becoming Buddhists. The four noble truths that the Buddha taught were these. Number one, life is suffering. Because you're always going to want what you don't have. And you're going to wish that you didn't have what you do have. At any point in your life, you're going to experience a gap between what you desire and what you experience. Life is suffering. The gap between desire and reality is suffering. Noble truth number one. Noble truth number two, the Buddha said, the cause of suffering is desire. Desire creates the gap between wanting and having. The third noble truth, the way, therefore, to end suffering is to end desire. And the fourth noble truth, spend your life seeking to end desire. And you've heard of the noble eightfold path of the Buddhist religion, which is the path toward nirvana, which means to end desire. Are you hurting? Is there something you long for that is not yours to enjoy? Don't let your hearts be troubled, says Buddha. Kill your heart. Commit spiritual euthanasia. Kill the patient to cure the disease. Don't let your heart be troubled. Deaden desire. The secret of contentment for the Buddhist is to stop wanting to be a better person, to stop wanting your marriage to be good, to stop wanting a good job, good health, good ministry, good friends, good kids. How many of you have ever thought that wanting something was the definition of selfishness? That's Buddhism. How many of us have ever thought that that's what Jesus meant in John 14? Do we read, don't let your hearts be troubled, and do we feel a pressure within? As Jesus is now saying to us, look, I'm sick and tired of your complaints. Stop wanting so much. I've given you this and that, and you're complaining about the other. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and stop wanting what you don't have. Don't complain. And end your complaint by no longer really caring what's happening in your life. Love God in a way that deadens the nerve endings of your soul so when something goes wrong, you won't feel the pain. Well, that young man that I saw in Boca Raton was searching for peace by that route, but he discovered something. Desire is built into the fabric of human nature by our Creator. Jesus says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. And I believe what he's saying essentially is this not deaden your desire. But deepen your desire. Deepen your desire till you realize that what your soul most wants is me. I think it was Lewis who said, if it wasn't or doesn't much matter, he probably said it somewhere. Whenever you're not sure who had a good quote, give it to Lewis. Lewis. Lewis, I think somewhere said, we're satisfied with too little. We play in mud puddles when a vacation by the sea is available. Is a spiritual vacation by the sea available to the 70 year old gentleman I spoke with four or five days ago who, after a very difficult surgery, No longer has opportunities for a physical relationship with his wife. And he wept. What does that man need to do? Pretend he doesn't care? Deaden his desire for what will never be again? Or is there an invitation to deepen his desire? To realize that when desire is faced fully and deeply and clearly, that the opportunity for joy and peace in the middle of lesser desires unsatisfied is ours. Just this morning I had opportunity to talk on Moody Radio for just a few moments. And the announcer asked me a question that I haven't been asked for a while this morning on radio, so it's on my mind. And he said to me, Larry, I'm aware that two and a half years ago that you had surgery for cancer and that it was a life-threatening struggle, as battles with cancer typically are. And he said to me this morning, how did my life-threatening illness affect me? And I may have told the story before in some of your hearings, but... It occurred to me again this morning, and I wanted to share it again this afternoon. My mind, when he asked the question, went immediately to that first night in the hospital. The diagnosis had come that afternoon, early afternoon, when I had been taken to the hospital a couple of nights before with certain difficulties, and the tests were taken, and my wife, thinking that my problem was minor, we had no reason to suspect something serious, was out having lunch, and she came back in the hospital room uh, smiling and happy, assuming that there was no great trouble. And just before she had come in the room, the doctor had walked into my by my bedside and said, the CAT scan indicates a tumor that we're certain is cancerous. And when I shared that with my wife, we cried together. Our daughter-in-law at the time was pregnant with our first grandchild, and Rachel's first sentence was, with tears streaming down her face, I don't want to be a grandmother alone. Don't let your heart be troubled. What does that mean? Stop wanting that. Deaden your desire. How selfish can you be? Other people have fewer blessings than you. If God calls you to that, accept it. Nirvana. Extinguish desire. Become a passive thing. Not a living, throbbing, vitally alive person who longs to be a grandmother with a grandfather by her side. Buddha says, stop wanting that. What does Jesus say? You want something more. Pay attention to the deepest desires in your soul. That evening after Rachel had driven home and I was in the hospital by myself spending my first evening in the hospital knowing that cancer surgery was a day or two away and the results were of course uncertain and by the way I've been asked by several already today how I'm doing and the results of recent tests are all good I'm doing fine. And I'm glad I'm doing fine because I desire to do fine. Don't tell me to stop desiring that you're a Buddhist if you do. But if that's the deepest desire that I'm aware of, tell me to become aware of a deeper desire than doing fine. When Rachel went home that first night, and I was in the ninth floor of St. Joseph's Hospital in Denver, I remember lying in my hospital bed. I may have told the story last time I was here. I think I was here shortly after the cancer surgery the last time. And I arose from my bed, and I went to the window overlooking those downtown streets of Denver. And I'll never forget that moment. It's still very vivid in my mind, as two and a half years ago. But I'll never forget looking down on the streets of Denver and saying to myself, "I desire what I do not have. I desire. I long to be down there. I long to be in one of those cars that's coming back from an evening out with my wife, having a wonderful dinner." And going home and enjoying walking into my home. And the next morning getting up, it would have been a Sunday morning, and going to our church. And that's what I desire. And I can't leave this room. I desire what I do not have. Suffering. Eliminate desire. Then you won't suffer. No. Deepen desire. And you'll find a joy in the midst of suffering. But you'll still suffer. And I'll never forget what happened as I stood by the window and looked out on the streets of Denver. I, I believe by a direct movement of the Spirit of God, my mind was taken to our Lord's temptation when Satan took our Lord to the height of a mountain and had him look over all the splendors of all the cities of the world and said, You can have it all. Let me awaken this desire within you, Jesus have all the splendors of the world It's yours on one condition turn to your father and say you don't want any more to do with them it was augustine who said and my mind went to a saying of augustine that night i never forget in the hospital in denver i thought of what i had read from augustine that he said this he said imagine god coming to you And saying to you this, I want you to list everything you desire. Identify every desire you have. Healthy, godly kids, a wonderful marriage, good friendships, a lovely home, a wonderful ministry. All good desires, not selfish things like I want to be filthy rich and have a big yacht and an airplane at my disposal. Not not all the, the decadent luxuries so much, but just the good things of life that when we get them from God, we say, praise God, isn't he good? And we enjoy them. List all those desires. All the things that you want, Augustine imagined God saying to him, and then he said this, Augustine said, suppose God said to you, I will give everything to you that's on your list. And Just pause for a minute. What's on your list? I've got a list. If I told you what it was, I'd cry. Because I don't have some of those things. They hurt. They hurt real bad. Augustine put in the mouth of God this imaginary fable of, and it really isn't because it's very close to what happens, God saying, I'll give you everything that's on your list of desires, but you can have it all on one condition. You'll never see my face. Then Augustine said this, the chill that you feel when you think of the possibility of never seeing the face of Christ. That chill is your love for God. That chill is your deepest desire. Deepen your desire until you become aware that beneath all the other legitimate desires, which of course cause suffering in this world when they're not fulfilled beneath it all, There's a deeper desire. And that night in the hospital, I'll never forget it, I was seized with desire. Everything in me just wanted to see the face of God. And I knew that was my guarantee, because he's going to come back. And I went back to my hospital bed, knowing surgery was coming up in two days. And I would say to you without fear of overstatement that that moment was the closest I've ever come to experiencing the peace of God. And it was not without its suffering. Don't so let your hearts be troubled. Become aware of the deepest desire of your soul. It will give you all you need to be passionately alive in the struggles of life. I want you to turn to First John, John's first epistle. Uh, John's first epistle. First John, chapter three. Our theme this year at Founders Week is the second coming of Christ. It was Teresa of Avila who once said. From heaven. Once we see the face of Jesus. The most miserable life on earth will look like one bad night in a cheap hotel. When we become aware of our deepest desires, we still hurt. We don't thereby make other desires less than they are. But we realize that the other desires, no matter how strong they are, are less than our deepest desire. And that's the source of joy. And you'll know if you're in touch with your deepest desires... Not only by how well you sing during a worship service. You'll know whether you're aware of your deepest desires centrally. By how well you love your brothers and sisters. First John chapter three. John's first epistle chapter three says how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. We're no longer homeless. We have a home. It's in Jesus. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we're children of God and what will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we're going to be like him. We'll see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What's that purification all about? That's my topic actually for this evening, but to touch on it for the moment. Those who are purifying themselves on the basis of the hope of the second coming are those who understand the meaning of verse 14. Look at that. We know, 1 John 3 and 14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. The last few minutes, I want to share three simple thoughts from this passage. If we're going to hear our Lord speak to us and tell us to not let our hearts be troubled on the basis of the second coming, on the basis of the fact that he's with us and for us and one day will take us home, on the basis of the fact that the deepest longings of our souls are always toward him and he's always faithful, if we're going to make sense out of that, then I suggest that we need to hear three simple thoughts that come out of our consideration so far. first thought is this. Our hope of heaven... Gives us the courage to look deeply into our hearts when life is hard. Our hope of the second coming provides the courage for us to look deeply into our hearts when life is hard and to discover our deepest desire. Don't let your hearts be troubled. What you most deeply want is all settled. And when you find pain within your soul, it's never the bottom line. And because you know your home is in heaven, find the courage and that hope to look deeply into your heart, to face everything, to lift all remnants of the Nile. Not in order to face the pain, but to go beneath the pain and to discover what are your deepest desires. Thought number two. The path to discovering our deepest desire I don't like this thought. The path to discovering our deepest desire requires that we feel our lesser desires. And feeling them will sometimes produce great pleasure and sometimes will produce great pain. The path to discovering our deepest desire requires that we feel our lesser desires because our deepest desire is beneath the mound of everything else that we desire. And if we don't face that, we'll never reach what is deepest in our souls. And as we face what's lesser in our souls and face how much we wish this were happening and it's not, how much we wish, we wish this were not happening, but it is. As we face all that, we hurt. When we face how much we want something that is, we rejoice. We rejoice. Walk through the joy and the sorrow until you come to the deepest desire of your soul. The third thought is this. Only when we discover our deepest desire and find our satisfaction in Christ will we be able to richly love each other. Only when we discover our deepest desire and find our satisfaction in Christ, will we be able to richly love each other? Let me tell you why that's the case. That's the case because until you find your deepest satisfaction in Christ, in every relationship, something is at stake for you. And you're demanding that somebody respond to those deepest levels in a way that violates your ability to give for the past five years the great burden in my own heart and mind and soul in my own ministry has been to think about how we live together as Christians the great burden in my soul has been to think about the kind of conversations we have over lunch and over breakfast and in counseling offices and in Bible study groups and One of the great burdens of my heart is that in so many conversations we miss each other. That in so many conversations we say lots of biblical sounding words, but nothing is released in our souls. Think of the last time you were with somebody at a meal or perhaps in your Bible study group and a a problem was shared. Remember what you felt? You wanted to fix it. That's how I feel. I want to do something here. And there's something in me that's agitated. i, I got to fix it. And it's like, how do I do that? I'm not sure. I feel inadequate. So I'll cover over my inadequacy and give my advice with power. And then once that doesn't work, we end up by saying, you want to see a counselor. <laughs> and so you send them to me. I can't tell you how often I've chatted with people. It happens every time I chat meaningfully with somebody that I feel profoundly overwhelmed and inadequate. And the thought so many times has gone through my mind as I've heard people tell me their difficult stories. I've said it to myself, not out loud, but I've said, this person needs professional help. (laughs) Then I realize I'm a professional. I don't know what to do. close friend told me a little while ago that this past year he came very close to suicide. We were having coffee together about two months ago when he was sharing the journey of his struggle this past year. And he said as he came to a point where he couldn't see the reason to go on, the pain was so great. And he just wanted to numb the pain somehow. He couldn't handle it any longer and didn't know how to numb the pain other than to take his life. And he said he went out to a hillside And just sat for a couple hours and pondered and tried to pray. And I asked this gentleman, who actually is a close friend of mine, I knew he didn't call me, and I said, Did you ask anybody to go with you? Did you talk to anybody about that? And he said, No. I said, Why not? Here are his words. I didn't want anyone to try to help me. I wanted somebody to join me. Not in suicide, don't mishear me. I wanted somebody to be with me in my pain. I wanted to be a person who, when I let them know all that was happening inside me, it didn't throw them into a nervous frenzy where they had to say, how do we make this better? I wanted somebody who wouldn't be disturbed at the deepest level of the soul by what I was going through. I don't believe we relate very well to each other. Sometimes we try to fix and give advice and say something helpful and make a difference. And the deepest energy of our hearts really is, I don't know if any of this works, but I sure hope it works for you, so I'll say it a little bit louder. That's a shame. My latest book, called The Safest Place on Earth, I tell the story of a picture that's embedded in my mind that I don't think I'll ever forget. My wife and I moved to Florida some number of years ago. I really have no idea when. I just plain can't recall. Um, We moved to Florida after I finished my graduate school in Boca Raton, Florida, close to Miami Beach, about an hour, hour and a half north of the beach, and we wanted to go to the beach and wanted to see this sunshine vacation paradise. And so Rachel and I one day had a, Sitter for our kids, and the two of us went on a day long date and drove to Memi Beach and were looking forward to seeing the tourist attraction of the beach. And we got there, and as we um, walked down the street that was right by the ocean with all the fancy hotels, we were all impressed with the bigness and the glitziness of it. And then we walked inland a block or two, and the world changed. Another big, dirty city street. A lot of noise. Nothing very attractive. Nothing very vacationous about it. And as we walked down the street together, we passed a we passed an apartment building that it turned out we discovered was a retirement center, and people that had worked all their lives in Detroit and Chicago and Pittsburgh moved down to Miami Beach. And in front of this particular apartment house, there was a porch about maybe 60 feet long and maybe 10 feet deep off the sidewalk that Rachel and I were walking down, and there were On this big porch, there were maybe, we didn't count, but maybe a hundred rocking chairs, all lined up, perfect rows and columns, and maybe 60 chairs were occupied by an elderly retired person. And what struck us as we walked by, nobody was moving, nobody was talking, nobody was even sipping iced tea or reading a magazine. They were just sitting there. My wife whispered to me, I'm not sure why she whispered, nobody was listening. She said, I feel as I walk by this group of people, I feel like breaking into a song and a dance. It's my position that the Spirit of God feels when he walks by many of our Christian fellowships. Maybe it's time to turn our chairs to each other. Maybe it's time to learn what it means to relate to each other when a brother is so full of pain he wants to take his life. What does it mean to be with that brother? What does it mean to pour the life of Christ into that brother? What does it mean to sit with a man at age 70 whose surgery has eliminated certain legitimate opportunities for pleasure and he feels like he's cheating his wife and he's hurting? What does it mean to have a conversation with him? What does it mean to turn our chairs? Do we fix him? We can't fix him. Do we refer him? What do we do? Do we paste Bible verses on top of it? Or do we relate? It's my conviction that we're not going to turn our chairs well until we let the hope of heaven provide the courage to walk into all of our unmet desires and hurt And to discover beneath these unmet desires that there is a deeper desire. Don't deaden the desire and call it contentment. Go into the unmet desire and weep, but then go deeper. And when we discover that the deepest desire in my soul, and when this becomes more than a cliche and more than a nice spiritual sentence, when we discover that the deepest desire in our soul Really is to know God. Line up a hundred Christians. How many have discovered that, do you think? It's true of all of us as Christians. How many of us have discovered that the deepest desire in my life, that remains steady as an anchor... In the middle of this frustration, this difficulty, this heartache, this shattered dream, in the middle of all of that, the deepest desire in my soul is to know Him. And that's possible now. And one day in fullness forever. Then the second coming becomes the anchor for our life. The hope of heaven must provide the courage to walk into all of the pain of unmet desires so we can discover the deepest desire that only Jesus can fully satisfy. Only then, I suggest, will we be, will we be free to love with the peaceful, strong, footwashing love of Jesus. Only then will we turn our chairs to one another. How do we live together as people who hope for heaven? in our chairs what does that mean tomorrow afternoon i want to take a look at that incredible incident in matthew's gospel in many the several of the gospels but in matthew we'll look at it tomorrow that incredible incident where jesus was hurting so badly he turned to his community of three special friends And here was the God-man, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the eternal God in incarnate form, whose deepest desire it was to please the Father. My delight is to please the Father. And that never changed, of course. But as he was about to go to the cross, he became aware of the horrors of what he was about to endure. And he became aware of a desire. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there a way to give people life without my dying? If there's a way to give people life without this suffering, of course I want it. If there's no way, my deepest desire remains. And when Jesus was wrestling with pain, he didn't deaden his desire. He went to three friends and he said, Would you watch with me? Let me know, let me let you know how much I'm hurting. When Jesus' most needed community, his community most failed. They fell asleep. My question is why they fall asleep. I don't want to fall asleep on you when you share your heart with me. I don't want you to fall asleep on me when I share my heart with you. I want us to turn our chairs to one another. How do we do that? Between now and tomorrow, I urge you to read the account in Gethsemane in Matthew 26. And as we learn how disciples failed, these disciples failed, maybe we'll learn some lessons about how we can avoid that failure. And how we can walk as children of light and children of hope. And how we can minister to each other in ways that our thirsty, hungry souls desire. Father, deliver us from being Buddhists. Forgive us for wanting certain things and when they don't come true, just killing our souls and pretending we're at peace. Give us the courage to know that the last chapter has already been written and it turns out wonderfully. And that because the future is just plain terrific. And because no matter where we are in life, we can always say the very best is yet to come. Father, because that's true, deliver us from hearing that as cliché. Because that's true, give us the courage to face that now life can be pretty tough. And that we want certain things that just aren't there. Help us to enter into those desires. And then not to stop there and complain and be angry and discontent, but to go beneath all the desires of our hearts, some that are satisfied, some that are not, and to find the deepest desire in our souls to know you. And then as people who long more than anything else to know you and who therefore learn what it means to rest and to trust. With that new attitude and spirit and energy within us, then teach us what it means to turn our chairs and to become a spirit-filled community, filled with hope, even though we're broken. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.